Welcome to Arcade Attack. A retro gaming podcast for up to four players. Hi guys, Adrian here from Arcade Attack, and on today's show I am joined by Tommy Tallarico. This guy is a legend in video game music, it was a real pleasure to talk to him. He touches upon his amazing career, his Guinness World Records, his work on Earthworm Jim. It's a really, really interesting interview, so guys, <laughs> just sit back and enjoy a lovely talk from a legend himself. Tommy uh, Tallarico, the proper retro gaming legend here, proper music maestro himself. Um, we're massive fans, I, I have to say, we are huge fans here at Arcade Attack. Some of your games, uh, the, well, all the games we played as a kid, uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the music you've made has been there, so thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for making me feel old. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I apologise. <laughs> um, I've got quite a few questions. Um, I'd love to start though from the beginning, even like thinking back to your earliest memories of music and how you first got into music. Um, what was your first earliest memories of, of that particular field? <clears throat> yes. So, I mean, my whole life, my two greatest loves growing up were always video games and music. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I grew up in the 70s, so there was no such thing as a video game composer back then. So, yeah. <clears throat> but... Um, but I tell you, I used to, um, in the late 70s, because um, my generation, we were the first to grow up on video games. Yeah. But um, in the late 70s, what I would do is I'd take my dad's big cassette recorder and I would take it down to the local arcade <clears throat> and uh, and I'd record all my favorite video game sounds and music, whether it was Space Invaders or Missile Command or, you know, <clears throat> the uh, intro to Pac-Man, whatever it was. And I would take that home and I'd also record all my favorite uh, video game songs on like my Atari 2600 and my Intellivision. And I would uh, invite all my neighborhood friends over and I would hit play on the cassette and I put my favorite video games on the TV behind me and I'd jump up in front of the TV 
and I'd start playing my guitar along with the video game music. And I would charge all my friends like a nickel. Right. So those, those were kind of the first video games live shows <laughs> were, were, were back then in the late 70s. Uh, so, I mean, video games live today is nothing more than a uh, 10-year-old kid's manifestation uh, you know, for the last 40 years. But um, so that, that I was always into music and video games. Like I said, my two greatest loves and passions. Um, but then the way I got involved in the game industry is that when I turned 21, I, I grew up on the East Coast of the United States, a state called Massachusetts. And, but, you know, Americans all know, like when you're growing up, well, people all over the world know that, you know, like Hollywood is where you go and L.A., that's where if you want to be in the entertainment industry and music and acting and all that stuff. You know, you got to go to Hollywood, right? It's the, where dreams are made. Um, and so when I turned 21, I literally, I got in my little two-seater car. I'm the oldest, uh, oldest in my family. I have a younger brother. Um, and so I literally left my parents crying on the doorstep. Um, and I, I went to California by myself in a little two-seater car. I had no money, no job no place to stay, no friends, nothing. <clears throat> so when I got, I had a credit card that had a $500 limit on it. And I, that's what I would put my gas on. And uh, I would buy myself a loaf of bread and some peanut butter and jelly. And I lived off that for like two weeks. Um, but then when I got to California, uh, and if anyone has ever been to Hollywood, uh, especially this is like 1990, right? Um, if, you, if you've ever been out there during that time, it was a real shithole. Like, it was like, you know, there's like drug dealers and hookers and homeless people. And, I was, and so I, I showed up there and I'm like, oh, my God, well, I've been bamboozled by Hollywood. Like, this isn't this isn't what uh, it looked like on TV. Yeah. And the only other thing I knew was Disneyland in California. So I'm like, OK, well, where does Mickey Mouse live? That's got to be a pretty cool place. And happiest place on earth and all that. <laughs> so I stopped a homeless guy and uh, I asked him where Mickey Mouse lived. He pointed me down to Orange County, Anaheim. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm running, I'm going, driving into Anaheim, driving into Orange County. Again, my very first day there. Um, I had like a pair of jeans, three t-shirts and like a little rolling keyboard. Um, and uh, I, I drove in, I rolled into Orange County and I see the the you know the the nice beaches and the palm trees and the fancy cars and I'm like oh okay this is what I envision California to be like and I'm close enough to Hollywood to, to figure it all out yeah. to be close enough to get in the industry so I picked up a newspaper and I saw a job for selling keyboards ah. at a guitar center and so I'm like okay well you know East Coast Italian I can I can bullshit my way into that job so I I, I went down there. Because I didn't have a, again, I was homeless. I didn't have a place to stay. I literally, I was sleeping under a pier uh, at Huntington Beach for the first three weeks I was in California because I couldn't afford to live anywhere. So I was homeless, you know, and I'm, I figured, look, if I'm going to be homeless, you might as well do it, you know, uh, on the beach, front property. I mean, people pay tens of millions of dollars to, to live here, and here I am living for free. Um, but um, so I went down there the first day. And I, I walk, I said, can I speak to the manager of the store, please? 
I go, okay. Yeah. And he pointed me to the back room and, and then I march in there with the, with the newspaper and I say, I want this job. I'm the man for this job. And they go, what? And the guy's kind of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, <laughs> you got to fill out an application. You have to like, you know, we have to give you an interview. I'm like, no, no, I don't need any of that. I'm, I'm your guy. I'm going to still, I'll start right now. I'll sell anything. Just put me out there right now, but you know, I'll do it for free. Just, you know, let me, wow. you know, give me the opportunity. And this guy's kind of laughing at me at this point. And he's like, you know what? I like your, uh, you know, I like your moxie. I like, I, I like your attitude. You know what? You got the job. I said, great. Can I start today? He's like, no, start tomorrow morning. I said, okay, fine. <clears throat> so I come back the next morning. Now it's my second day in California. Yeah. And again, homeless, you know, not even sleeping in the car, just sleeping outside, sleeping on the beach. <clears throat> and uh, I come in the first morning. I had three T-shirts with me, like I said. Well, yeah. one of those T-shirts was the TurboGrafx-16 ah, T-shirt. Yeah. Now, at the time, it hadn't even come out in America yet, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but, but I had this shirt because I was so into video games. And again, if you can remember the time, 1990, there were no video game T-shirts around. There was, you know, there was no Hot Topic or Internet or Walmart or Target where you can go and buy video game T-shirts. There was none of that. There was no thinkageek.com, you know. So <clears throat> this was super rare. And the way I got this T-shirt was actually an interesting story because I used to get all the video game magazines back then. That was the big thing. Right before the internet, before everything, every the, the way to get your information about video games was to get the magazines. Yeah. And in one magazine a year earlier, I had seen that Turbo Graphics was going to set up a booth at a fair, which was about eight hours from my house, and they were going to show this new system to see if American audiences liked it. Well, I made my poor mom drive me all the way to this fair. You know, she wanted to like you know hang out and go on rides and stuff like that. Uh, but I stood in line. So we drove like eight hours, yeah. stood in line for like about three hours, played this turbo graphics machine. And then, you know, they asked me like 20 questions about the game. What did I like about it? What didn't I like? And to do, and, and then after they were done, they gave me a, a t-shirt, oh, nice. turbo graphics t-shirt. So that was like, this is like my prize. It's like my trophy, right? So I happened to be wearing that shirt the first day of work on my new job. I got to wear my best shirt ever. And so I'm wearing this TurboGrafx-16 shirt. Well, the very first person who walks in, the first person that, that I waited on, literally the third person I talked to when I was in California, because there was the bum on the street who pointed me down there. There's the manager of the store. And then this guy's the third person. He was a producer who worked for Richard Branson and they were starting a virgin video game company right down the street. Cool. And he saw my shirt and he goes, oh, my God, where did you get that shirt? He's like, do you know about video games? I'm like, I know everything about video games. He's like, really? Holy crap. And so I proceeded to download like 20 years of my video game knowledge on this guy. Wow. And he was so impressed. He goes, well, look, you know what? Do you want a job? Oh. I said, yes. <laughs> Doing what? And he said, well, uh, he goes, well, you know, we, we just kind of started the company. We don't have anyone to play our games. So, well, you'll be like our first play tester. You just play the video games and tell us what you like and don't like about them. And, you know, we'll pay you six bucks an hour. And uh, 
I said, well, this is the greatest job ever. Yes, absolutely. So I was in California three days and I was in the video game industry. And so I used to bug the vice president of the company every single day. Um, if I could do music, I said, look, whenever you need music, let me know. I'll do it for free. You don't even have to pay me. If you don't like it, that's fine. You know, uh, but please give me the opportunity. Give me the opportunity. So about <clears throat> maybe four or five months later, one of the first games that they were working on in house was Jordan Mechner's Prince of Persia. Oh, a classic game. And a classic, right? The original. And so they said, okay, well, we need some sounds and music for this. So, you know, see, see what you can do. You know, before we hire anyone, we'll give you a shot, Tommy. I said, great. So, um, so I worked on that game and I got great reviews and won an award. And they said, okay, we're going to make you the music guy now. So, nice. <laughs> so I stayed at Virgin for four years uh, doing music and worked on such games as Global Gladiators, Cool Spot, Disney's Aladdin, The Terminator, Robocop versus Terminator, The Seventh Guest, some amazing games wow. we were doing there. And then after Disney's Aladdin, that's when uh, my buddy David Perry, uh, who was the lead programmer on all those games, he left to form Shiny Entertainment, and he took the team of folks that we, because we, there was like a team of eight of us who worked on all those games, pretty much. And um, so when he left to form his own company to do Earthworm Jim, I left Virgin at the same time to form my own company because everybody was trying to all the other game companies were trying to hire me nice. to go work for them. So I had EA wanting me to work on the Madden games. I had, uh, you know, Capcom. I had Midway wanting me to do Mortal Kombat. I had the Sony PlayStation 1 was just coming out. And um, if you ever recall the very first PlayStation demo disc that came with all the PlayStations, I did the music for that. Wow. Um, so that was just coming out. And so, um, so I decided, well, I'm going to leave Virgin. I'll still work on all the Virgin games, but let me go work on all the other games as well. Yeah. And so when I left Virgin, I had a couple million dollars of contracts in my pocket, <laughs> which again, back in 1994, 95 was completely unheard of, yeah. but I could pretty much write my own ticket because I had, I had consistently won best music of the year award for four straight years in a row. That's incredible. In fact... In fact, the last year I left, I was out of the out of the five finalists for music of the year. Four of the games were mine, so it was crazy. It was like Earthworm Jim and Skeleton Warriors and Aladdin. Like they all kind of came out with the same time. Uh, who but, was the competition? Uh, it was kind of crazy. Who, who was the other game? Do you remember? <laughs> um, it was like uh, let me see. It was I know it was. Um, you see, it was Skeleton Warriors, yeah. Earthworm Jim. Um, <clears throat> what the hell was the other one? Oh, it might have been like the Terminator on Sega CD or oh, some, on Mega Drive or something. Uh, <laughs> I forget at the time. I have the magazine somewhere where it, <laughs> where it lists it all. It's pretty funny. That's amazing. And so that's that's kind of how I uh, I got all into it. And then uh, and then after Prince of Persia, they made me the music guy. So I was doing it for you know good. And then I was I did that for about four years. Started my own company, and then I started working on everything. So I was working on all the EA uh, Madden football games and the basketball games, and I was worked I worked on Mortal Kombat and and the, a lot of the Sony first party. Uh, 
you know, first generation, uh, PlayStation games and, uh, everything from NFL blitz, to, uh, uh, the test drive series with accolade and, uh, you know, t- uh, the bond games, um, yeah. you know, some of the, all the, the bond games and, and then Tony Hawk was a little later. I did all the Tony Hawk skater and then all the Spider-Man games and then Metroid prime and, uh, just kind of some of the Sonic games, Pac-Man games. It all kind of like just snowballed from there. So it's pretty cool. Oh my, it's so amazing. I mean, I, I, could, have you ever thought to yourself if you wore a different T-shirt on that first or second day in California? Well, you know, it, it's funny because I'm, I'm a big disbeliever in luck. You know, yeah. I, I, I hate that word, luck, you know, yeah. like people are, it's very easy for somebody to say, oh, you're so lucky that, that you had that, you know, that, that, that you wore that shirt or that that guy came in on that day. And it's like, I'm like, no, it's, it, it, it's not luck because, you know, was it lucky that I left my parents crying on the doorstep? Was it, was it lucky that I cried myself to sleep every single night on my way to California, scared, hungry, yeah. terrified, not knowing what, what the next day is going to bring or my future? Was it lucky that I basically, you know, barged my way into the manager's office and demanded a job at the music store? <laughs> was it lucky that, that when that guy came in and saw my shirt that I was uh, capable of having an intelligent discussion with him about video games and I was friendly and I was, you know, like I, I made friends with the guy right away. So, so, you know, I, I, I think if it wasn't that guy who came in on that day with that t-shirt, yeah. I still think I'm a big believer in fate. I still would have got there somehow, you know, cause <laughs> it was just, and that's what I tell people a lot when I, when I speak at schools and universities, um, or to kids and stuff, no matter what, field you want to get into as long as you have the drive and the passion and willing to never ever give up no matter what eventually you're going to make it you know it's just a matter of of when you just keep have to keep going you never have to give up you know that guy didn't walk in that day i wasn't going to pack up and and drive back home you know i would have kept going until something happens you know so um you know as long as you have the the passion and the willing to you know to survive and suffer and take no for an answer ten thousand times and keep going well that's that's the difference between success and failure i love it i love that uh i think fair play to you (laughs) you seized your opportunity and I, i i think you deserve everything you got so fair play to you tommy brilliant stuff um nice You've worked, correct me if I'm wrong, on over 300 video games, music on 300 video games. Um, yeah, Guinness World Record. <laughs> exactly. I was going to come to the records in a minute. It's incredible. Is there um, a particular piece of music or soundtrack for one game that you think, yes, this is the pinnacle? Or have you got one piece of music you're the most happiest about? I mean, that's that's a lot to choose from. Yeah, you know, there's... <laughs> there is, and there's there's two projects that come to mind for different reasons. Um, Earthworm Jim yeah. is one of them. That was a project, and and the reason that one, you know, I'm, I'm so you know, kind of I I like that one so much is because the situation was again, it was like about eight or ten friends. We were all like brothers, yeah. and the idea was we didn't have a game design document. We didn't have producers over our shoulders. We were kind of doing it on our own, 
And again, which is very rare for like the, you know, the early nineties, because it was always about, you know, you had five levels of producers and you had to have a 300 page game design document before somebody greenlit the project. And then you had milestones along the way for this, because we were the golden boys at the time, we basically said, look, we're going to make a game and we'll deliver it in nine months (laughs) (laughs) and it'll be, it'll be a great game. And so the whole thing for Earthworm Jim is, was us going into work every day and trying to make each other laugh. Yeah. That's what Earthworm Jim was. And when you play Earthworm Jim, that's exactly what it feels like, right? Oh, yeah, I yeah. mean, it's like, you know, and we didn't have to have a reason. We didn't have to have a, a producer's, you know, a stamp of approval or a marketing department stamp of approval. You know, we're just like, hey, why don't we in the first level – Launch a cow. <laughs> it's brilliant. Off, bit, yeah. off a refrigerator, and every level you'll see the cow. Yeah, you know, and, and like that doesn't make any sense at all. But it's funny. We were making each other laugh. We're like, oh my god, that'd be so funny. Well, the same thing with the music. You know, we're like, okay, we have this scene where Jim's on a rocket and he's going through like this massive asteroid field. Now, if we were sitting down and had producers and everything, they'd be like, oh, let's do something like Star Wars and John Williams, you know. Um, and I'm like, uh, let's do banjo music. And they're like, ah! everybody starts laughing like, yes, let's do banjo music. Why? Because no one would expect it. It would be hilarious. And, you know, so yeah. that kind of thing. So, so that's why I love Earthworm Jim is that you're just given free reign to do whatever you want. But from a musical standpoint, if I were to say what what you know what is the thing you're most proud of musically, yeah. would probably be a game that not too many people played. Unfortunately, the the, the soundtrack won uh, it, it won a best soundtrack, a bunch of best soundtrack awards from like three different magazines. It was a game called Advent Rising. Mm. It was for the Xbox and PC, and um, that was uh, a game that. Um, you know, not a lot of people played, but I wrote an Italian opera for nice. it. So that was, I got a, you know, I got an opportunity to work with like a hundred piece orchestra and the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, about 120 voices. And, um, so that, and I wrote the whole thing in Italian. So that would, uh, that would be one of my favorite, from a musical standpoint, yeah. that's my favorite. Oh, brilliant. I, I have to say, I haven't played that game, but Earthworm Jim is one of my favourite video games. It's uh, it's <laughs> cool. one of my earliest memories of the Mega Drive. I love it so much. Oh my gosh, yeah. I, I was always partial to the Mega Drive too. Like, I, I, there's so many people, like, all these, like... Um, there's all these like channels on YouTube and all these discussions and there's like panel discussions at game conferences. Like what was better, the Super Nintendo or the Genesis and which had the better music and the better graphics and the better sound and the better gameplay. And for us, it was always the Sega. Ah, It was always the Mega Drive. (laughs) and, and, And just to let you know, we used to make all the games first on the Mega Drive. And then we would port it over to the Super Nintendo. So same thing with like Earthworm Jim or Cool Spot or, you know, Robocop versus Terminator, any of those games, we made them on the Genesis first because we were, the Genesis came out first yep. and we, we all, you know, we, but, but from a sound standpoint, I always loved the sound, that beefy, synthy, you know, it was like a Yamaha chip in there yep. had that beefy sound chip. Um, 
you know, so and I was doing stuff where I was using samples within the music, you know, whether it was a guitar hit or an orchestral hit or, or a horn blast or whatever, which no one was really doing at the time. You know, the only time you ever heard the, the Mega Drive make a sampled sound was like Sega <laughs> or, you know, um, like that's the only voice that's in Sonic the Hedgehog was right there at the beginning. And the reason for that wasn't that people were lazy or anything like that. The reason for that was that the the cartridge, the cartridge space was so, you know, you had to conserve everything and sound would take up the most out of out of the whole cartridge. So so, you know, like like 10 levels of graphics equaled like one sample. Wow. (laughs) It was just insane. The amount of difference. So that's why no one used it. But what I did is I would put all this music and all these samples and stuff in the music and I'd use it in all the sound effects and the voices and everything. And, and I, and I would, we'd, we'd walk into the president of Virgin or whatever and say, Hey, look at this. Yes, this is being a cartridge hog, but if you spend an extra two or $3 to manufacture the cartridge with more space, look at how different it's going to sound and how amazing it's going to sound. And 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 to our credit, Dave Perry's credit as well as the programmer, we convinced them, and they're like, you know what? We see the value there. And this is when no one gave a crap about sound in the old days. It was always like, yeah, if it makes a sound, ship it, you know. But for us, we were like reinventing the wheel on the Mega Drive and all these all these platforms um, because I was given the space, and we were able to convince the people that you know convince the, the the, the powers to be that that was the way to uh, that was the way to go. And it was the way of the future and stuff. So, so yeah, we were, we were kind of, uh, you know, fortunate in that regards. Nice. Well, it sounds like you're ahead of your time, Tommy, you really paved the way. So who knows what would happen if you didn't help push that for fair play to you. Fair play. Yeah. Thanks. Um, I've got here, you've got a lot of Guinness world records. You've, and I've got here. So most video game concerts performed in a year. Most video game mm-hmm. concerts ever performed, largest yeah. audience for a live video game concert, and you're China, the, yeah. China, and you're the person who's worked on the most commercially released video games ever. Um, Crazy, right? That I mean, it's you, <laughs> yeah. you, we could talk about each record for for hours, but how how do you <laughs> how do you reflect back on those records? And do you have one that you're most proud of, or is that a tough decision? I mean, it's absolutely incredible. <laughs> It is. I mean, I mean, the the one of the you know the person who's worked on the most video games ever in their lifetime is a is a pretty special one. That's amazing. Um, you know, f- just because you know most of the time, if you think about it, most artists or programmers or designers or producers or whatever, you know, most of the time, they have like. You know, they work on like one game for like two or three years, yeah. right? Yeah. So if they've had a career of like 10 years, maybe they've worked on four or five games, yeah. right? Or 20 years, maybe they've worked on 10 games. Well, being a musician and composer and sound designer, um, I was able to work on 20, 30 games at a time. Right. Because, you know, as they would be creating the levels and say, oh, this level is done. OK, let me make the music for that now. Oh, this this sound is or this art uh, you know, weapon is done. OK, create a sound for that. Yeah. So so I was able to, you know, because I was an outside contractor and I didn't just work for one company after I left Virgin, that enabled me 
to work on, you know, 20, 30, 40 games a year, which was pretty crazy. And of course, back then it was easier. And that's why the record will never even be touched ever again by a human being, because the, you know, back then a, a, a mega drive game, you know, you could have like 12 songs that were maybe two minutes long and you had like 50 or a hundred sound effects. Yeah. So again, it enabled me to work on 30, 40 games at once. Cause I could handle that kind of capacity. But nowadays, you know, a game like call of duty, you might have five different composers on it. There's seven hours of music symphony, you know, yeah. uh, there's, there's 10, you know, 5,000 sound effects and 25,000 lines of dialogue and the audio team is 30 people just for one game, right? So, it's so it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of crazy. So that, that one's a pretty, pretty cool one because I don't think it'll ever be, uh, it'll ever be touched. But, um, but that being said, the accomplishment of, of video games live is super important to me yeah. only because when I first started video games live and back in 2002, People thought I was crazy. They're like, are you nuts? Like people who go to a symphony don't play video games and people who play video games, they don't go to the symphony. So you're like totally screwed. Like no one's going to show up to your dumb thing. (laughs) And, um, and that's when I know I always have a good idea is when I, you know, when somebody tells me it's stupid. Uh, (laughs) So like, for example, I was the very first video game composer to ever release a soundtrack worldwide no one had ever put out a video game soundtrack before i did capital records it was called it was called tommy tellerico virgin games greatest hits volume one it was on cassette and cd (laughs) 1994 you can look that up and there's an awful picture of me with uh ripped jeans a little (laughs) mullet going on and uh, <laughs> and a joystick in my hands, <laughs> but that was the very first video game soundtrack. And again, I kind of that same kind of attitude where I walked, where I waltzed into Capitol Records, and I said, "Hey, look, you, you know, people will listen to video game music on their own yeah. if I can, you know, rec- record it with real instruments and this and that." And they're like, "Are you crazy? Why would anyone listen to video game music <laughs> after the games turned off?" You know, so it was just such. A crazy concept. So, um, you know, that was, uh, so, so again, I'm crazy. I'm nuts. So, so with video games live, it was really incredible though, because when I started it, everyone thought I was nuts. The very first show I did was on one of the most prestigious and famous stages in the world, the Hollywood Bowl with, with 200 musicians on stage from the Los Angeles Philharmonic, one of the top orchestras in the world, right? Yeah. And again, everyone's like, you're nuts. And I, I spent all my money, every cent that I had saved up in my career at that point, I rolled the dice and I put it to create the show. And um, they're like, oh my God, you're crazy. You're lucky if 500 people show up to this thing, yeah. you know? And well, long story short, 11,000 people showed up for the first show. And all of a sudden I wasn't so crazy anymore. And so we launched, it was the very first video game concert world tour. It was the very first video game concert in the world that, that used screens. Cause you know, they had done some 
stuff in Japan uh, in the 80s for like Dragon Quest, but they didn't use screens and it was just one game and all that. Yeah. Um, but then, uh, but, and, but also, it was also the very first time ever that music like Kingdom Hearts and Sonic the Hedgehog and Metal Gear Solid and Warcraft and Halo and Myst had ever been performed live anywhere. Yeah. So to that point, no one had ever even played Sonic or Kingdom Hearts live. And so uh, not even in Japan. And then we were using screens and no one had ever synchronized music and screens to, to a video game show before. So all this stuff was kind of, you know, uh, kind of trailblazing at the time. And again, everybody thought I was nuts. I went ahead and I did it. And what was great about that is after we did that, you know, there's like four or five different video game symphony shows now. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you know, you've done something good when uh, when people start, uh, you know, doing the same thing. That's right. I think there was a Zelda one not too long ago in London, for example. That I, I missed yeah, that one, that one, that one's no longer. The Zelda one's gone and the, there was a Pokemon one as well. And that one's gone too. Uh, but there's like a Distant Worlds is like a Final Fantasy show. Wow. And again, I think it's cool. I think it's cool that all these things are out there and exist because it shows how popular video game music has become and that was always my goal from the beginning so people are like oh are you mad that like there's other shows out there who who ripped off your idea or whatever i'm like no not at all i want there to be i want there to be 20 of them yeah. you know i want there to be as, yeah. as many as possible because it just goes to show how great video game music is and that was always my goal from the start that's why i created it in the first place it's, it's so amazing i mean video games live you set the you set the way forward, really. It's a fair play to you, Tommy. Absolutely incredible. Well done. Um, it was crazy. I think one of the turning points here in the U.S. for video game music, in 2010, we did a PBS special. PBS is one of the most revered stations. It's not like some like crazy you know, channel that's like you know, 352 on your DirecTV or whatever. Yeah. PBS has been around for 50 years. It was one of the original television stations. And to do a concert on PBS is like the pinnacle of like being a musical artist. Uh, you know, whether it's Elton John or Celine Dion, yeah. uh, the three tenors and Luciano Pavarotti, those are the type of people who do PBS specials. Well, they, they've done over 5,000 PBS specials over the last 50 years. And Video Games Live was ranked number eight That's of incredible. all time. That's incredible. So we're, yeah, so we're right up there with Paul McCartney and Elton John and Luciano Pavarotti. And we were in 90 million households, that special. Oh. It was also played over in your part of the woods, uh, Sky Arts. Yeah. Played it for a year as well too, so it was all over Sky Arts. And again, as you know, being a you know being being from the UK, Sky Arts is like the real deal. Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. like you know, it's it, 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 it's uh, you know it's it's a it's, uh, it's, it's a great honor to, to be a part of that. So yeah, definitely. Um, so I so I think video game music, you know, got a lot of credit and got a lot of uh, you know was was able to get a lot of. Uh, I think it went up a couple notches when uh, when that special came out and people started to pay a lot more attention to it and uh, you know I think I think that was one of the one of the factors one of the many. Oh, brilliant! Good on you. I mean, 
Do you have any future hopes? Uh, future? What's your future for video games live? And do you want? I don't know if you've toured the UK at all, but do you hope to come to the UK anytime soon as well with that? Yeah, we're we're actually going to be making an announcement about uh, a UK uh, tour again um, pretty soon here. Actually, we'll, we'll we'll be there. See, we're we're we haven't even announced this yet, but I'll announce it. I'll, I'll give you the scoop before wow. anyone else. Um, we're playing Paris Games Week at the end of October, so we're going to be the featured thing there. Uh, if you look on our tour schedule on VideoGamesLive.com, we have like four shows in Germany at the beginning of November. Yeah. So what we're doing is we're putting together like a three-week European tour, and it's been a couple of years since we've been to the UK. Uh, so we're going to be returning in a big way uh, all over the UK. Uh, we'll be in France. We'll be in Germany as well. So yeah. So we, we and and we're just putting it all together now. But but the, the four German shows are on sale already. Paris will be on sale within the next week or so, uh, and then you know hopefully uh, quickly to follow will be uh, London and and hopefully Manchester and and some other places as well. But we've played all over. I mean we've played yeah. Wales, we've played Dundee, uh, you know in Scotland, we've played uh, we we've played a ton of places around there, Ireland, but uh, North and South. But um, yeah, we just we, for me, see, I change the show every single year. So a two and a half hour performance of Video Games Live is about 19 different musical segments. Nice. Well, I can tell you, I've created over 175 different segments for the show so far. Wow. <laughs> so, so people could literally come to Video Games Live 10 times in a row and still not see all of our, <laughs> all, all of our uh, segments. So we're always changing it. You know, some of the new stuff that we're adding in. Uh, that we just recently added in was stuff like Okami and um, uh, some more Chrono Cross and Chrono Trigger no, stuff. Um, we just announced Undertale, yeah. and uh, there's always stuff that we can draw from from Final Fantasy. You know, we're um, we're doing all this, and then uh, every couple of years we also do a Kickstarter project to. Um, to you know, create our newest album. So we've done five big symphony albums so far, and I just call them like levels in video games. So it's level one, level two, level three. Well, uh, on February 19th, and it's going to be going for two months, um, we're going to be launching Video Games Live Level 6 nice. on Kickstarter. And so we're going to be recording like Undertale and... Uh, a bunch of a bunch of stuff, but I I also I let the audience decide. I want the people who who uh, who put money towards the Kickstarter. I want them to ultimately decide what's on the set list for the album and what goes in the show. So you know that because that's what it's all about, right? The show isn't about me. It's not about uh, you know. It's about the people watching it. You know, and what did they want? It's not what I want. Uh, now, I, I always put, you know, I always put, you know, what I love in there as well, too. You know, something I might throw some curveballs at people, like something like Shadow of the Colossus, oh, something yeah. like you might not expect, or like an Okami or an Undertale or Journey or, or Civilization Four, something that people might not expect, like, oh, wow, yeah, we thought we were just going to see, like, Halo, Mario, Zelda, Warcraft, and yep. Final Fantasy, and then you threw like a Shadow of the Colossus and an Okami and a Phoenix Wright in there. Holy crap, <laughs> this is so cool! You know, so so that's uh, 
you know, that's the great thing is that there's always a plethora of, of, of the well to draw from because there's so much great video game music, even stuff from the past that we haven't covered yet. Like another one that's on our list is an old any uh Super Nintendo game called Earthbound. It was called Mother over in Japan. Yeah. Um, you know, that that's one um that that is on the list that people want to hear. Uh so the, always always, you know, older stuff uh and then newer stuff like Undertale that, that just comes out or uh, Overwatch from Blizzard, you know, we're doing that. We're doing Witcher 3. So there's there's all these, you know, there's always new stuff coming out and there's stuff that we haven't covered in the past. So it's it's just uh but you know, we try to do it in a different way as well too. We try to bring it as much power and emotion as we can, you know. We just we don't want to just play you know, a Tetris theme, right? We, we blow it up and do a whole Russian opera with it. And we bring as much power and emotion as we can to it, you know? So that's uh, like the stuff that we're doing for Undertale right now. Oh my gosh. I can't wait for people to hear this. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. And then of course, when you, when, and then when I go to record it with like a hundred person orchestra and, and stuff like that, the other big thing that we're doing uh, for level six is that I got in touch with the original Pokemon singer of the original Pokemon TV show. His name's Jason Page. He's the guy who said, gotta catch him all, you know? So what we're doing is we're going to be redoing with Jason. We're redoing the Pokemon TV theme song, full rock bands, me on guitar and some others. And then with a full symphony as well, a hundred person <laughs> symphony and, and choir and everything, we're going to blow this thing up. And then he, so we're not only do, are we going to put it on our next album via the Kickstarter, but also Jason's coming on tour with us in March, starting nice. in March. And he's going to be touring, uh, touring the world with us. So we're going to play that as like the encore. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds incredible. It's great. We got these, we got these big pokey balls. They're like pokey beach balls, you know, so like these big beach balls. And I put a little bit of helium in it and I blow it up and there's big pokey balls. And when when we're playing, I, I, I throw those into the audience and the audience is like, you know, hitting the hitting the yeah. pokey balls all over the venue. It's hilarious. <laughs> I sounds I need to come. I'm, I'm going to be looking at your website. Off, I'm going to get those tickets to the, the London shows. Definitely. I can't wait. <laughs> well, the best, the best thing I always tell people is just join the mailing list. Yeah, yeah. Go to videogameslive.com. Just put in your email and what country you're in or what state, if you're in the U.S., what state you're in. But put your country in because then what we'll do is as soon as tickets become available, actually even before they become available, because yeah. we give our mailing list first crack with the best seats and the best prices and all that, as soon as that, we'll, we email you. Oh, so nice. so yeah, so join up to the mailing list. That's the absolute best thing I can tell people to do. Well, as soon as I finish talking to you, Tom, I'm doing that. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Um, I mean, you've won so many awards. It must be incredible. I mean, how does it feel to be <laughs> such an inspirational figure in the music industry and the gaming industry? I mean, do you have to pinch yourself sometimes? I mean, how? What, what's it feel like? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it's the, the greatest feeling in the world. My grandfather would always tell me this and my dad is that if you can do something, if you can do something in your career that you love, then you'll never feel like you're going to work. 
it'll always be like you'll be excited to get up every day. And that's that's what it is for me is like I'm excited every single day. I, I, I don't sleep much. You know, I I go to bed at about midnight and I wake up at about four or five in the morning because uh, I'm like so excited about what I'm going to do today. What's what's happening today? What what fun thing am I going to do today? Right. So when you have that kind of thing going on. It's um, it, it doesn't seem like work. And when you love what you're doing and when you're passionate about it, then the success and the money and all that, that that will follow. Right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, don't ever do something because you think the money might be good. You do it because you love it. And then the money and success will follow after that, you know. But um, but I got to tell you, there's not a day where I, you know, I walk into my my house or, you know, sit in my car and, and just like go, wow. Like, yeah. you know, it's a lot of hard work to get there. You know, it, it, it wasn't easy. And I took all the risks. I've, I've took multiple risks multiple times in my life. But every day I wake up and I appreciate it. You know, and that's that's something that's really uh, I think keeps keeps you grounded is, you know, knowing that you came from nothing and you had nothing. Yeah. You know, and and all this stuff that you, I worked really hard, took a lot of risks, suffered, you know, many things to get to where I am today. And I appreciate that. I'll never forget that, you know, and that you can't I, I don't think you can really know success unless you've had nothing, <laughs> you know, because you, you 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 appreciate it more, you know, like like if, if, if I turned 21 and I came from a rich family and my dad just gave me a Ferrari it's like, oh yeah, that's really cool. I might really like Ferraris and stuff, but but to come from nothing and have a poster on your wall growing up as a kid and dreaming about it every day and then working your freaking ass off, you know, and taking risks and 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 suffering, and then you buy that Ferrari for yourself and you sit in that car, yeah, that's a big big difference. You know, it's a big difference. So. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge mm. fan of like the Rocky films, the underdog story. I'm not saying you're an underdog, but it just, I agree. If you, if you, no, I'm an underdog. <laughs> I, I'm gladly an underdog. And uh, it, it, it's funny you mentioned the Rocky films because that's the next project I'm working on. Seriously. <laughs> so we're we're yeah we're doing uh, we're going to be doing uh, uh, you know a, I'm going to be doing the music. To the Rocky films live How, with wow. MGM and, and Sylvester Stallone. It's oh, going to be amazing. I'm a bit, I, was, I mean, yeah. Sly Stallone is a bit of a role model to me, I have to say. <laughs> Fair play. Have you, have you oh, met man, Sly he, then? Or? He was he was one of my heroes growing up because yeah. again, I'm like you know I'm an Italian kid yeah, from yeah, yeah. Uh, from from the East Coast, and I'm I'm like a short guy, so I got <laughs> like the Napoleon complex going on, and I'm always the underdog. And so for me, he was my hero and my posters on the side. Well, when I was at Virgin, they did the music or I, I did the music and I was also the producer, the video producer of Demolition Man, wow, yeah. which was the very first video game. It was for the 3DO, yep. um, but it was the very first video game where the star of the movie, when he signed the contract to the movie, he also signed the contract to lend himself an act in the game as well. Oh, no nice. one had ever seen that or done that before. That was 1993. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so I was the, and, and so I was the head of the audio and video department 
at the time at Virgin. And so I, not only did I do all the music and sound design and all that, but I was also in charge of all the green screen shoots and all the stuff. So I got wow. to spend a week with my hero, a week Whoa. with Stallone. So oh, I'm jealous. It was, it was pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Still got some great pictures from that. Oh, man. I, uh, Tommy, it's great. I mean, he's my role model, I have to say, anyway. <laughs> Fair play yeah. to, to me and Sly. Um, good luck with the, the Rocky soundtrack. That sounds incredible. Um, yeah, I mean, it's going to be a show. It's going to be a live show. We'll show. probably be bringing it to the Royal Albert Hall or something, maybe even the O2 if it's big enough. Wow. But uh, uh, but that'll be coming uh, sometime in 2019, probably. Because well, we're going to launch it in the U.S. first this year. Brilliant. Well, I'm getting tickets for that. I'll tell you that for free. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'd love to. I don't know. I'm, I'm sure every day is different, but I'd love it if you could quickly run through a typical day of writing music for a video game, and how long does it take to start and complete a, a track? Let's say, like make one piece of music for a game. What's a typical day? Yeah, it's like? a great question. There's a lot of different answers, but for, you know, and then every composer will probably have you know they have a different answer. But for me, yeah. uh, you know, I don't come from a background of reading sheet music and graduating with a bachelor's of music or anything like that. I'm more of like a hot dog. I'm more of like a rock and roll guy. I never learned how to read music. I just, you know, I would listen to my mom and dad's Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis Presley records because that's, they were a product of the fifties. That's what they grew up in. And uh, I would listen to that and I'd play it back on the piano, you know, or when I was 10 years old and the first Van Halen album came out in 1977, I'd listen to it and I'd try to figure out what he was doing on the, on the guitar. So, so that's how I learned. I, I, I play by ear. Um, and so when I write music, it's kind of the same type of deal what i do is i like to play the video game without well obviously there's no sound in it yeah but i can get the i can get the cadence of the run or you know like like is this a fast level is a slow level but i also want to know the emotion from from the designer you know are we being chased or are we chasing somebody yeah am i in a car or i'm in a plane What's the emotion? Am I scared? Am I happy? Am I sad? What just happened the level before? You know, so I, I take the emotion because a lot of times I find composers sometimes get in the rut of, oh, we're in the jungle world, so let's make jungle music. Oh, we're in the ice world, so let's do icy, tinkly bits. You know, and, and for me, it was never about the environment. I mean, I might add some of that at the end, but again, you don't get banjo music in, in a space <laughs> asteroids chase no. if you're thinking that way, you know? <laughs> so, and, and so to me, my goal was always just to make a great piece of music, which again is a very different approach because a lot of times film composers, game composers, they'll, they'll say to you, you know, the best music is the one that you don't even realize is going on. And, you know, it's supposed to be background music and incidental music. Well, I'm the exact opposite of that. I want the music to be in your face. I want it to be memorable. I want to write a great piece of music so much so that when you go to turn the game off, you want to actually keep listening to it because it's memorable because the big difference. And some people say, oh, that sounds so conceited. And that's no, it's what it is, is see movies. You tell a story through a dialogue. 
right? So there's a lot of talking. So in movies, yeah, I get it. Music is incidental and maybe you have one or two big chase scenes and you get to kind of blow it up at that point. But for video games, we get the action scene every single time. I don't call video game music background music or incidental music. I call it foreground music. It's the music in video games that drives people to want to go faster or to want to punch harder or to want to, you know, whatever it is, right? Um, So the game music is the driving thing in the in the interactive part of the game and the other big thing that's different that video game musics differ from anything else out there is that video game music when you play a video game that music becomes a part of you it's your music because you are the character you've picked the clothing you've picked the eye color you've picked the, the what kind of sword or shield or whatever or what race they are, or what, you know, whatever. You know, this is you, your character, you've built it, and the the music becomes you. It's very different from film. If you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you see Indiana Jones, he's got his whip, and it's... You know, that's Indiana Jones's music. Yeah. Or if we're watching Rocky and like that's Rocky's theme. That's Rocky's music, right? But when you play a video game, that music is your music. Yeah. It's a part of you. We're emotionally attached to that music like no other music ever in the history of the universe. And that's kind of the magic of video games live, because when you get two, three, four, ten thousand people in a room together, and it's all of their own music, you, you see the whole audience is connected in a special way that because it's their music, but then this person sitting next to them had the same exact experience, and it's their music as well. And so it's it's really kind of unique. But but anyway, getting back to it, so, so what I would do is I'd play the game without the music, without the sound, and then I wait for things to come into my head. Shit will start just coming to my head, yeah. and, and then some of it might suck, and, and some of it might be good, and then some of it I might really be in love with. And then once I get something in my head, just, and again, I'm literally just imagining in my head, you know, whatever. And then I, when I got something that I really like in my head, I then run over to my piano and I start figuring out what's in my head. And that's the hardest part for me and the most frustrating part because I don't want to forget it. You know, and sometimes I'll record it into my phone or record it on a tape recorder just in case. But, but, you know, but I'm trying to figure out what is that thing that I'm hearing and are, are those horns or those strings and how are the strings going to play with the horns or, or maybe it's a guitar and, but am I, am I humming the bass line and the guitar is going to go along with that or is that the guitar playing? You know, so I, then I try to, that's the hard part, uh, is to figure out what I'm hearing in my head and putting it down into the computer. Um, and then, so that, process might take me like a day, half a day, sometimes five minutes. Um, but then to record it and to refine it and to, you know, then that might take, you know, many days after that. But the actual songwriting itself for me has always been really quick, always like a day, yeah. you know, uh, a couple hours and the best ones always come the quickest. And so that's why if I'm like struggling with a tune and I've been working like 
two or three days and I'm just, nothing's coming to me. And, or I'm kind of like, I got this mediocre thing and I might try to make it better. I just, I just blow it off. I'm like, you know what? Screw this. If it didn't come right away and it wasn't great out of the gate, then screw it. Let me, let me, let me take a day or two off and I'll come back to it and let's start fresh. And then maybe something will come to me right away again. So, um, so that's the way I work, but that's, again, it's, that's probably a unique, you know, more of a unique thing than, than most people, but, uh, but you know, that, that's, that's how I do it. Well, it's a winning formula, so <laughs> why change it, I suppose, <laughs> and play. Um, I think you kind of touched upon it in your, the way you were just talking then, but what inspires you? What, what are your biggest inspirations when you work on video game music? Is there <laughs> things in the background that inspire you? What sort of things really get you going? I, I, I think the more knowledge that, that you have about music, the easily you are inspired. And what I mean by that is, like, if you never heard any music ever in your entire life, that's going to be a lot more difficult to come up with with music, right? <laughs> Especially, like, if you've never heard symphonic music and Beethoven and Mozart and Stravinsky and Magorsky and, 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 you know, whatever Holst and, and all these guys, you know, Carl Orff, if you've never heard those composers, you're at a disadvantage. So, so for me, the inspiration, the more I hear, yep. you say, well, are you just ripping off other guys? No, it's, it's drawing inspiration. You know, like when I listen to Beethoven's ninth, and if, if I can, you listen to that and you start picking apart all the different instruments. What's amazing about that is you see the genius of Beethoven and his orchestration, which was so, you know, like the cellos might be going, you know, and then, uh, and then what are the, what are the flute, the woodwinds doing in that? And the strings are, and everything is like, doing different shit, but all together, it's working together. And so what I would always do is I would listen to all my favorite music and I'd learn how to play it on the piano. And I'd say, Oh, wow, look at, look at how that, you know, when, when I'm doing, I'm in this key doing that thing with the strings, but, but, but the bass, the lower end is actually doing this thing, alternating back and forth at a different time signature or whatever. That, that's that's how you like you learn from the masters. You know, people say, "Who'd you study under?" I say, "Well, John Williams and Beethoven," because those <laughs> that's why uh, you know. Who, where'd you learn to play the guitar? Uh, Eddie Van Halen. Uh, you know, because that's what I listen to. And so, the more type of music and the variety of music that you listen to, whether it's you know, if you listen to EDM music, you have to be able to know other EDM music to get inspiration about, oh man, I really like that kind of sound or that kind of bass line or that kind of, you know, I'm going to draw inspiration from the masters who came before me or from some of my favorite artists. I find that that's how I get inspired, you know, Um, you know, and, and, and folks will say, well, you know, it's the hand of God coming down and touching upon you and artsy fartsy. And, and that, that's cool too. Okay. Let's go with that. Um, but, but, but for me, you know, from a scientific standpoint, the more I listen and the more I learn, 
the easier it is for me to get inspired. I find personally, that's just yeah. me. That's a good answer. I appreciate that. Um, you spoke earlier about Mega Drive and the SNES, a big competition there music, yeah. musically. Is there any other consoles that you think were the best? Would you say Mega Drive or Genesis was the best? <laughs> or you know, No, you know, it wasn't even the best. It's just that I liked it better. Yeah, <laughs> it was easier. The tools were better. I liked that low-end synthy sound. But, you know, you... you Put, t- take a Super Nintendo game like Actraiser or Super Mario World, and the music to that was amazing, and it wouldn't have sounded that good if it was on the Mega Drive, right? So, yeah. so it really, it, again, I wrote for the Mega Drive. That's why my music sounded the way it did. I like that big, bassy, you know, synthy vibe, and I wrote for that. Um, you know, when I would write for the Super Nintendo, I wrote a different way, you know, but, but for me, the, um, the PlayStation, the original PlayStation one, that was like a big, huge leap forward because now we had like red book audio. I could record real guitars, but we could also turn on and off these yellow book audio streams. We had up to 16 of them, which is eight stereo tracks, right? right? Stereo track would be two left and right. And so we could have 16 monophonic streams going or eight stereo streams going at once. So that's how you got games like Parappa the Rapper, for example, where, you know, you're playing the game in the rain or in the snow. And then depending <laughs> on what you did in the game, it would be turning on and turning off different streams so that's really um you know up until that point the way to do interactive music was you had to like branch midi files yeah right so um which again was was great and was cool and everything but it wasn't real music it wasn't real players so once we got this streaming capability in the playstation one we're now able to record live orchestras, live guitarists, live whatever, and have different versions of that playing, but the, but you would never hear them. You would only hear the one I wanted you to hear. Yeah. And then if the action got a little higher notch, then I would, you know, I would, I would crossfade that guitar with this guitar. And they were all playing at the same time, but you were just only hearing one of my recordings. Well, then I would turn that down and turn the bigger recording up, which was more, you know, maybe it was playing 16th notes instead of same timing, same tempo, but the difference between eighth notes, 16th notes, or 32nd note, you know, and so you could keep the tempo, but change the time, change the, you know, the change the excitement level if you will, yeah. uh, of each of the channels. And that is where it really, you know, took off. And that was the PlayStation 1. Oh, great. It's a great console, isn't it? It's a fit, oh, brilliant. Yeah, it really is. I, I mean, I think PlayStation 2 is probably my favorite console overall. Um, yep. Like if I had to pick, uh, just because at the time it came out, there was so many 
revolutionary games that were coming out, the God of War stuff, the Metal Gear Solid stuff. The, I mean, it was just, you know, it was just crazy. One major hit after the other. It was, uh, you know, uh, the Tomb Raider stuff and Uncharted and uh, the, the r- racing games were just crazy. Yeah, so crazy. at the time, that was, I, I always felt like that was, I, I always seemed to have the, my biggest library when I look back was like PlayStation 2. <laughs> nice. The library I had for PlayStation 2. Now we're, yeah, we're huge fans of the PS2 year as well, I have to say. Yeah, Eco, um, my God, Shadow of the Colossus, yeah, all that shit. Resident, yeah, obviously, and Silent <clears throat> Hill 2 and stuff, absolutely incredible. Um, oh, Silent Hill 2. Classic, isn't it? <laughs> Um, yeah, we play it in the show. <laughs> yeah, honestly, wow, awesome, awesome. I'm yeah, Laura's theme. Yeah, it is. It is great. It's such a great game. Um, bit of a weird question now. Was there ever a piece of music or a video game you worked on that you just couldn't quite click with? It didn't motivate you, or you just found it really hard to make music for? Was there ever a game before? It's just not working. <laughs> Yes, it was a game called Color a Dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I always make fun of it. And you can go on YouTube, put in Color a Dinosaur, and uh, you'll hear it. No, it, it was funny because it was this really bad eight, uh, you know, 8-bit Nintendo NES game. And they literally came into my office, the producer, one day and said, hey, we got to ship this uh, to Nintendo tomorrow to, for approval. And we don't have any sound in it. And you've never worked on the sound driver. So here, learn this really complex audio driver. And we need like four songs and like three sound effects. Go. You have 10 hours. You know, (laughs) or whatever it was. I stayed up all night and I had it done by the next day. So, you know, when you're in a state of panic and you're dealing with technology you've never used before, and that's always the frustrating thing back then was the technology. You know, creating the music was sometimes the fun and easy part, but then getting it to sound like something the way you wanted it to and putting it in the machine, that was always the frustrating part. And so when you have all those things working against you, time and technology and like no cartridge space, no budget for anything, (laughs) (laughs) I always say it's the worst game I ever worked on. uh, Color a Dinosaur. It's uh, it's pretty funny though. The the music's pretty annoying, but but because I always say that people are people like you know come up to me all the time and say, oh, can you sign my copy of Color a Dinosaur? <laughs> yeah. And 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 if you look on eBay, you, Color a Dinosaur in shrink wrap is about eight hundred bucks with my signature. Oh, really? On. It's unbelievable. It's <laughs> unbelievable. So so this crappy game became like this kind of urban legend, and uh, and people want to collect it just because it was so bad you know so uh so it's pretty funny and and there's tons of people who have done reviews on color a dinosaur on youtube yeah so it's it's uh, it's pretty funny uh, just, yeah. color just dinosaur. Out. check that one out, I'll have to check it out. <laughs> um you kind of you touched upon it earlier tommy working with shiny and obviously the legend david perry um how much freedom are you given when creating a video game music and does it does the freedom differ depending on what titles and what publishers you're working for? Absolutely, a hundred percent. And and I can tell you this, um, you know, David Perry, I was the best man at his wedding. He was the best man at my wedding. Wow. Um, when I work on it, when I ever worked on a David Perry game, it was like David, like do whatever the hell you want. You're yeah. the boss. You're the award winner. You know what the hell you're doing. I don't. I'm not going to tell you how to do your stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and, you, and I won't tell him how to program code. 
Um, and so, so, you know, so he gave me free reign and, and same thing with that Advent rising game, uh, the company Majesco and the folks who, uh, made the game, um, you know, the developers as well, they gave me free reign. They, they said, look, um, you know, you're, you're, we want you to do whatever you want, you know? But then when you start, when you work for some of the other companies like EA, they were kind of pains in the asses um, because, you know, they'd have like three different producers and this guy would like the song, but the other guy didn't. And then marketing would get involved and they thought that this style of the music didn't, didn't serve the product the best. And and then it becomes like, you're not even creating music. You're just trying to please seven different people um, and trying to make them all happy. Now, you get seven different people in a room and they're not going to agree on any kind of music, right? I mean, some people might like heavy metal and some people might hate it. Some people love country music. Other people hate it, right? And so, but then you get some of these uh, producers that whatever they were listening to that week, that's what they wanted in the game. So like I'd be working on like a fishing game and they'd be like, and nine inch nails would be really big at the time, like in the mid nineties or whatever. And they'd be like, yeah, yeah. I want to sound like nine inch nails. Really? It's a fucking fishing game. Like what the, (laughs) you know, how about like a really cool slide guitar? (laughs) Give me some like Southern New Orleans, you know, kind of whatever, you know, like some really deep Delta (laughs) blues, you know, that's like a fishing game. You know, you want, you know, uh, not, not so much. So, so yes, it varied from publisher to publisher, from game designer to game designer. And I can tell you at the end of the day, the best music that I did and all the games that I won the awards for were when they just let me loose. Sure. And the ones that were like, you know, the, the, the tougher ones. And then I, at the end of the day, cause you know, I mean, and I'm a, I'm a pretty strong personality. So I, and I wouldn't give a shit cause I didn't work for these people directly. Yeah. Um, you know, I wasn't an employee of theirs. I was a contractor. So I would stand my ground and I would fight with people. Um, but you know, you want to be their friends as well too, cause you want them to hire you for the next gig. But you know, in certain things I'd put my foot down and they would respect, you know, most of the time people would respect that and go, okay, shit, we've crossed the line with this guy. He's, he's, you know, uh, you know, and he does know best it seems. So, you know, maybe, maybe we're wrong. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't put nine inch nails in a, in a fishing game. Um, <laughs> let, let's see what he comes up with, you know? So, and that's what I would tell people. I say, Hey, look, let me do my thing. And if, and if it's so bad and you don't like it and it's so terrible, then, then let's try your thing. But let me try my thing first. And, and, and by the way, it's not like I hit a home run every single time I was up at that. Neither did Babe Ruth. Right. But, but, yeah, yeah. but, you know, and so I never went into the thing having an ego. I wanted to please everybody, but you know, you have certain ideas, certain individuals, uh, you know, especially when it comes to music, it's so subjective that, um, that, you know, hey, let, let, let me give a shot of what I think and in my experience and what I think would be fun because I would always approach the game. And again, Earthworm Jim is an example. I would always approach stuff in a completely different way than most people. So, hey, if you're hiring me and paying me the big bucks, paying me twice as much as all the other folks out there, yeah. well, let me do what I do. Yeah, yeah. You know, let, let, me, let, let me do 
something that's out of the box or something that's crazy. Like even when we were doing Advent Rising, again, it's like a sci-fi game. But and so the first thing was, yeah, you know, we were thinking about maybe, you know, we really love Star Wars and, and John Williams. And then I started to talk hear the story, which was this tragedy, like this kid who has to choose between his fiance and or his brother. Which one do you save at the beginning of the game? You have to choose one. And whoever you pick, the, the, the kind of the twist in the whole game, maybe I shouldn't ruin it for you, but the twist in the whole game is if you picked your brother to save him at the beginning, at the end of the game, he actually dies and the person who you let die was actually still alive. So like, there's this whole like mind fuck that goes on throughout the whole game, but it's like a tragedy. It's yeah. like sad. It's like, and, and so I, when I heard about the story and about the character, and by the way, it was written by Orson Scott Card who is the guy who wrote the Ender's game. And so it's got that very much kind of vibe. And he's one of the, you know, the, the, the biggest sci-fi writer writers of our generation, if not the biggest. And so, um, so I'm working with him on the story and he's telling me the story and stuff. And, and I'm like, my God, this is like, this is an opera. This is like a tragedy, like screw star Wars. Like anyone can do that, but this is like drama and sadness. And I want to write this like, an Italian dramatic opera. And people were like, holy crap, that would be epic. (laughs) And when you, and you you can just go on YouTube and just watch the opening cinematic to Advent Rising. And you're like, whoa, I've never experienced anything like this before. Because what I did is I created this music and then they they would get, hear my music and they go shit we're gonna create a cinematic around your wow. music now that, <laughs> so, that's unusual so would, I'm sure that's unusual yeah, exactly wow. it's always the other way around it's yeah. like here the cinematic's done now we'll make the music for them they'd be like Tommy give us another tune it's gonna be like for the opening so make it slow you know and then they would create the cinematic around my music oh brilliant I'm gonna, I'm gonna try this game out most definitely I can't wait to play it. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a really cool game, actually. Yeah, I, I have to try it out definitely. Um, apart from it, your got, own... it got a lot of bad reviews. It was un, uh, it got a lot of unfair bad reviews. Oh, did it? I think you know. Oh, yeah, enough. yeah. Well, you know, pe- people, you know, I, I think one of the mistakes they made was they're like the next Halo, and I'm like, oh god, don't say that. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but uh, but it was it was a, it was a fun game, and and the storyline is fantastic. Um, had some gameplay things here and there. I mean, we could have spent a couple months refining the gameplay and the controls, but uh, but the storyline, the cinematics, the voice acting, uh, it, it was all super top notch. Really, really cool. I think people enjoy it nice these one. days. Still. Nice one. Um, apart from your own work, is there a pe- a game or a piece of music? from a, another video game that just blew you away and you almost maybe a little bit jealous that you weren't involved in it. Was there, who, what's your favorite sort of music that you haven't been involved in in the video game? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's three main, well, gosh, there's like five or six main game composers that I love. Um, I mean, my favorite piece of game music ever written uh, Libre Fatale, the opening to Final Fantasy VIII by Nobu Omatsu which we perform in live and video games live. Um, that to me is, is epic and awesome and freaking incredible. So anything by Nobu is yeah. usually incredible. I love seven. I love six. Eight is probably my favorite. I love 10. Um, and then, uh, but Koji Kondo as well, you know, the guy who created the Mario and Zelda melodies, uh, 
you know, I mean, how can you not, you know, think he's the greatest thing since sliced bread? Um, also a, a really good friend of mine, uh, Yasunori Mitsuda, and he's the guy who did the Chrono Trigger, Chrono Cross series, um, and Xenoblade and stuff like that. And so he's a, just a really incredible songwriter. Those are probably my three favorite Japanese guys here in the U.S. Um, I really love, uh, Russell Brower and Jason Hayes. Those are the guys who do a lot of the, um, a lot of the, uh, World of Warcraft music and, and Neil Akery as well. Those three guys are just unbelievable. Um, so anything basically from Blizzard is epic. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, a lot of times it's, it's Neil or Jason. I mean, they use a bunch of different guys, but th- those are, those are some of my favorites. Um, and then Marty O'Donnell, uh, who did Halo and of course he wrote Destiny with Paul McCartney. That's pretty amazing. Uh, he's incredible, uh, as well. Gary Scheiman, who worked on the Bioshock series, Austin Wintry, who, who does, uh, Journey and, uh, Gerard Marino, who did God of War. I mean, there's so many, uh, incredible, incredible, uh, folks out there. And then, uh, and then more on the Brit side, uh, Richard Jakes, um, who's just an incredible, uh, songwriter, one of my favorites. Um, and he's based over in London. Um, he's amazing. And, you know, the guys who did Tomb Raider, Nathan McCree. And I mean, there's, there's so many, uh, so many great UK guys, um, as well. So, uh, yeah, Chris Hulsbeck over in Germany. I mean, he's amazing. So it really is. And then there's like some of the newer guys, like T. Lopes is a dude um, who's who worked on the new Sonic game. And he was kind of like just a fan of video game music. And he would do all these Sonic remixes. And then Sega like contacted the guy and said, hey, do you want to work on, you know, the next Sonic game with us? And he's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so his, his, his stuff is, uh, is cool too, you know. And then uh, like um, – and I love how some of the new guys are like – going back it's like full circle or going back and doing the old school stuff like toby fox who's the creator of undertale uh but also the musician in undertale yeah. you know you, you listen to his stuff and it's like these great melodies but with like 8-bit type sounds and stuff so it's kind of a paying homage to like when i first got in the industry 30 years ago so it's kind of full circle now you know what's old is new again and uh so that that's pretty cool to see uh to see the younger guys coming up and then knocking it out of the park as well. Oh, good on you. I know. Oh, brilliant. Some brilliant names you mentioned there, definitely. Um, you've obviously got quite a famous family. You've got quite a famous cousin, uh, Steve, Steve yeah. Tyler from good old Aerosmith. Um, do, I mean, do you see a lot of Steve? Do you, have you played music with him? I'm interested <laughs> to know if you... I was... I was... In fact, if you go on my Facebook page, I was with him uh, less than a week ago. Oh, right. I, was, I was with him today, last week, one week ago. Today, I was with him. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We we text constantly, um, and I always say that you know what's great about Stephen because um, people said, oh, hey, did he help you out in your career at all? And no, I never wanted help from anybody. Yeah. You know, that was my thing. I, I didn't, I never, I wanted to do it on my own. I could have called Steve and, hey, do you know anyone in the video game industry or the music industry? But, you know, that's, that's, you know, in the early 90s, no one knew anyone in the video game industry. But, um, but you know, but what he brought 
to me and brings to me, uh, and I tell him this all the time, what was great is when I was eight years old and you're standing on the, cause the family used to sit on the side of the stage, right? Yeah. And when you watching your cousin, Steven perform to like 20 or 30,000 people and having the time of his life, that to me, like when, when you're an eight year old kid, I'm looking at him going, Oh wow, that's cool. That's what I want to do when I grow up. Yeah. yeah. Like I, you ne- I never thought for a second that being like performing on stage to tens of thousands of people, I never thought that was like an impossible dream or something that like only one in a billion people could experience or I never, it was never that way. So he gave, he always gave me the confidence just not knowing that that was a hard job to do, to, to get into. I'd be like, well, if he can do it, why can't I? That's like cousin Steven. Why wouldn't I be able to do that? If, cause if you, when you know somebody who does that for a living, it's like, it doesn't seem like it's an impossible thing at all, you know? So, so that was what he gave to me was the confidence, uh, and familiarity to be a performer, you know? So yeah. I, I just, I never thought I wanted, I never wanted to do anything else. Cause it's like, yeah, that's, that's seemed like other people wanted to be firemen or, or astronauts, I wanted to be a rock star. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and I'm still, I'm not there yet, but, but, you know, maybe in the world of video games, uh, you know, I'm, I'm one of the guys, but, but, uh, you know, but in, 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 in our world, it's, uh, you know, I get to play in front of thousands of people on stage. And to me, that's the coolest thing on the planet. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Have you ever played, uh, is he a bit of a gamer himself? Do you play games with him at all? Or? Yeah, well, you know, it's here's here's a fun fact for you that uh, that, that doesn't get repeated a lot. But um, so I worked on the first. Uh, if, if you look on the very first Guitar Hero game, yeah. uh, you'll see my name and the special thanks and the credits and stuff like that. And so again, it was one of those things where I had met the Red Octane guys back when no one was paying attention, and they had a big plastic guitar, and they're like, "Yeah, we're going to sell these big plastic guitars to people," and and everyone was like, "Are you nuts?" Games are like little tiny cartridges that barely fit on the space. How would anyone even sell these in a store? Like, they're not going to take your game. It's a dumb idea, right? You're dead. Um, and so, but I was like, this is the greatest game ever. Holy shit. And, uh, <laughs> and so I helped those guys a lot. But <laughs> if you'll notice, uh, you know, my name's in the credits for Guitar Hero 1 and Guitar Hero 2. When I took Guitar Hero 1 and I took it backstage and it was it was me, Stephen, um, Joe Perry, and um, oh God, what's his name? Um, oh, the super talented uh, uh, black dude. Um, are you gonna go my way? Uh, what's that Lenny dude? Kravitz, um, is it? Lenny... What is that? Lenny Kravitz. Lenny Kravitz. Yeah. Lenny Kravitz. Yeah. Wow. Sorry. So 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 it was the four of us in a room. And I was showing these guys Guitar Hero for the first time. Nice. And Steve and Steven's like, "Holy shit, this is great!" I'm like, he's like, you know what? What? Where's the Aerosmith track? And I'm like, we couldn't get Aerosmith. He's like, what? Why? I said because Sony Columbia were being dicks and they wanted like a gazillion dollars. And he's like, that's bullshit. He's like, I'm gonna I'm gonna call him right now. Yeah. And and so he calls him up and he goes, hey. My cousin Tommy's going to call you. We got to put an Aerosmith song in this next Guitar Hero 2 game. 
And they, they're like, okay, like do whatever he wants, whatever he asks, whatever he wants, whatever works. I don't care. I don't care about the money. I want to be a part of this. Okay, great. Boom. So Guitar Hero 2 has an Aerosmith song in it. Oh, nice. But what you'll notice is the very first band ever to have its own Guitar Hero or rock band game was Aerosmith. <laughs> it was Guitar Hero Aerosmith. That was the first. Then after that, Metallica, and then there was a Green Day one and a Van Halen one. The Beatles and of course, Rockstar had the Beatles yeah. from the Rockstar. But the very first one was Aerosmith, and <laughs> and now you know why. Yeah, because it's not I, a you know, yeah. I, I yeah. went to I went to Activision. I said, look, why don't we do a whole thing? We'll base it on Aerosmith, and they're like, well, yeah, but we'll 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 Stephen and the guys. Will they like? You know, is it? Do we just get their music and and they'll and we get them one day? I'm like, dude, Steven's into this shit. He'll do motion capture for you. They'll they'll do they'll talk about it like crazy. They're always into it. Yeah, you yeah. know, remember they had like an arcade game in the '80s, uh, Aero Force One, and and it's funny because one of the if if you play that game, uh, there's a big hotel and it says Telerico oh, nice. uh, on the side of it because uh, his real name is Steven Telerico. He didn't oh, even right, really change right. his name. It's just his stage, his stage name. Uh, but uh, so, yeah, so we um, so that was the reason. And, you know, I called up, you know, uh, you know, Steven said, I'll call my manager, Trudy. And so he called to Trudy and I hooked them up and they did the whole uh, Aerosmith deal. And then the people who did that game, Guitar Hero Aerosmith, was Neversoft Entertainment, who was the company that I did Skeleton Warriors and then we did Tony Hawk Pro Skater and then we did Spider-Man. Nice. So it's funny how, you know, there's, there's all these kind of connections and I was kind of one of the, uh, the big hubs in that wheel. <laughs> really? I mean, fair play to you. <laughs> Excellent. Um, have you played every video game you've made music, uh, music for? And if so, do you have a personal oh, favorite, personal favorite game? Not necessarily the music, but the personal favorite game yeah. that you've worked on. Yeah, I mean, I would say Earthworm Jim. Yeah. You know, Earthworm Jim, because I like the humor, I like the fun. And I always knew a game was going to be great because when you're working on a game, you're playing the shit out of it yeah. constantly all the time to test the sound effects or to test the music. And mostly when you play it, you're playing it broken. It's not finished. It yeah. crashes. The controls aren't just right. The colors and the graphics aren't correct. They're placeholder stuff, right? So you're playing this for hundreds and hundreds of hours. And then when you go and do a game and you've finished it after all that torture of playing it for a year broken and you can't wait to get it home because now you want to play it finished, yeah. that's when you know you have a great game. And yeah. and that's what Earthworm Jim was. I couldn't wait to, to, to play the finished version. I was like, oh, man, come on. We got to finish this shit because I got to play it. And, 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 and that's a game. The amazing thing is that's a game that you can still pick up today, completely fresh, and you can play it and it's still fun and funny. You know, Disney's Aladdin, the game we did right before Earthworm Jim is like that as well, too. The graphics still hold up. And I'm talking about the Mega Drive version, yeah. not the shitty SNES version, <laughs> which is a big, you know, everyone loves the SNES version. You know, well, here's how it goes. If you played the SNES version as a kid, then that one's your favorite. If you played the Mega Drive version <laughs> as a kid, then that one's your favorite. You can't have a discussion because they'll put two people in a room and say, which one was better? And 
they'll debate it for hours on on YouTube or whatever. And it's funny because I've been to some of these panels where they debate it. Yeah. And uh, but um, but the reality is, is that the Genesis version, the Mega Drive version, was way better than the Super Nintendo. Uh, but but <laughs> it's just a fact. It sold better. It, it it did everything. We were using the actual animators from the movie who were doing Aladdin. The Super Nintendo version didn't have that. They were just it was just being made by Capcom in Japan. We were actually working at Disney with the people who made the movie. Um, I was working with the composers and then creating new music and taking their music and changing it. it was crazy right so anyway um but you, you pick up those games disney's aladdin earthworm jim you can still play them it, yeah. they're still fun to play you I know agree. and 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 that's saying a lot because like if you go back and play those old playstation games i i remember i'll tell you a, a funny story maybe you've experienced this with your buddies as well but we loved goldeneye goldeneye oh, when that shit came out we were playing four-player mode, and we would literally – that's probably one of the games I've played the longest in my life. Yeah. You know, like we would play that every day for like three years, and we'd set up tournaments, and we and we were just like crazy about that game, right, for like two, three years. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, about, about ten years later, we're like, dudes, why don't we all get together and fucking play GoldenEye again? <laughs> Holy shit, that would be so awesome. Yeah, cool. And we're like, we all get together. We got the game. We put the game in. We turn the shit on. And we're like, is this broken? Yeah. Like, what? The graphics are so shitty. And it's so, the frame rate is so low. And wait a second. There's got to be something. Tommy, check the connections in the back. Are you just- <laughs> 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 yeah. But at the time, GoldenEye was like graphically the shit and the yeah. frame rate was incredible. Like everything was so amazing about it. But then like if you try to go back and play that now, it does not yeah. hold up. Yeah, I right? agree. I totally agree but, with that. But there, but there are games. You go back and you play Earthworm Jim. You go back and you play Super Mario World yeah. on the Super Nintendo. And that shit's like just like the day you played it. It's still awesome. The music's fun the gameplay the design is excellent and this and that and and again and it's funny how they're doing all these hd remakes now right i mean look at shadow of the colossus one of my favorite games comes out playstation 2 now you got the hd version on 3 but wait we're not done yet we got another version (laughs) they're doing it again it's just it's coming out in a couple weeks right next week uh, the new version for PlayStation 4, and I can't, and I'm going to eat that shit up too as well. So, so those games like need a physical upgrade. And GoldenEye got one as well, if you remember, right? They 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 redid GoldenEye uh, graphically, but it, it wasn't as cool though. There was just something yeah. missing. But uh, but anyway, so that's I'd say you know a game like Earthworm Jim, I still play it. You know, 25 years later, and it's still fun. I, I tell you, it's one of my favorites actually. Earthworm Jim, I have to say. Um, I agree with you completely. And Goldeneye, I played again recently. It's not quite the same. I completely agree, Tommy. No, it isn't. You just said, yeah, it was one of those games you had to play at the time, and it was so revolutionary. And again, I love it, and it's one of my all-time favorites of all time. But 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 you can't go back and play it, unfortunately. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) Doesn't hold up. Doesn't hold up. I agree. Um, Earthworm Jim, uh, we speak about a bit more now. She was recently released on vinyl. Uh, there's been a huge yeah. recent demand for vinyl video game music. And, uh, I love it. Yeah. I 
I mean, what, what's your view on this huge demand for for music on vinyl? I, 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 I absolutely love it. I, I totally think it's a fad. It's going to go away within the next couple of years. <laughs> Do you think? But, but <laughs> I think so. You know why? Because the pe- a lot of the people, and this is just my own experience, so I'll sell video games, I'll sell Earthworm Jim vinyls at Video Games Live. Yeah. And these, you know, these kids are like 8, 10, 12 years old who never even played the game <laughs> are like getting me to sign their vinyl. And I'm like, oh, cool. You, do you ever play Earthworm Jim? They're like, no. No. Right. I'm like, oh, did you, uh, do you have a, oh, do, are you going to go home and play this on your record machine? You got a record machine? They're like, no. <laughs> I'm like, well, I just I just thought the cover was really cool and the character was fun and and oh look how cool these big discs are and these big pictures. <laughs> so so it's like all of a sudden vinyl has become for a generation of people who never held music in their hands. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, again, I grew up in the seventies and eighties, so I would get vinyl and you would open and part of the experience was opening it up and and waiting in line to buy it and then opening it up and putting it on the record player or your cassette deck or even in your cd later on and sitting there and listening to it because it was the only way you could hear it and then maybe you had a cassette that you brought in your car right and those were the only two places you listened to music either in your room or in your car right and now with the advent of digital music like you know the last 20 years and literally generations of people now who are in their twenties never held music in their hand. It was never a physical item to them. It was always just something on their cell phone or something on their laptop. And so now that, that you're saying, Hey, look, here's an excuse to hold music in your hand. Again, people who don't even have record players or don't even know are buying it because they're, holding music in their hand for the first time. That's what's cool about vinyl. People always say, oh, do you like the sound of vinyl? No, don't, look, I, 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 I'm going to be straight up with you, okay? Others may lie to you and, and, and pretend to be all pretentious and shit about this. Can I be honest? Vinyl does not sound better than digital. Okay? Oh, really? Let's just, let's just put, oh, let's just put it to rest now. It's, it, now, here's what I will say. Yeah. If a recording was originally pressed on vinyl, then it it could sound like, cause it will sound like the recording was at that time. Yeah. Right. So, so Elvis or the Beatles or whatever that, you know, stuff that was recorded in the fifties and sixties. But if you record something in the 21st century and you're using 96 kilohertz, 24 bit audio, the dynamic range that that entails, especially with symphonic music, you can hear stuff that you cannot hear even on a CD when you're talking 24 bit 96. And that's when I do all my video games albums. That's what I record them in, right? I record them in the top. And as part of the Kickstarter, you can get those original recordings and you listen to those in headphones. Vinyl cannot touch it. Not even in the same, just based on the, uh, you know, so if you record something digital in that high a thing, 
then you can only listen to it. The only way you're going to get that same experience of being in the room as it's being recorded is if you're listening to it in digital at 24-bit, 96 kilohertz. But if there's something that was recorded on, you know, in the vinyl era, and then you're hearing it on vinyl, it sounds different than you're used to because you're used to hearing a digital transfer that went from analog in the digital to your CD, and it might have lost something and this and that. So when you hear it in its original form, it, it, it may sound better to a lot of people, but it's not even that it's better. It's just kind of different. Uh, but it is better in certain, you know, certain mid and low range things. Yep. But the reality is any music that wasn't recorded to vinyl is not better on vinyl. Ah. So don't, don't let people lie, lie to you. It's all a, it's all a farce, <laughs> but, uh, but it'll sound, it'll sound different. Yeah. You know, sounds and, and you know how yeah. people, uh, and, and I'll tell you a little dirty secret about vinyl is that for stuff that was been recorded digitally, uh, and then you want to transfer it on vinyl. You know how people say, oh, you know, vinyl, it sounds so much more warm. That's yeah, a big, softer, yeah. you know, it's warm, it's softer. And again, if, if it's some old jazz or blues record that was recorded in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, yeah, you're going to get that warm sound because that's what it was cut onto, right? Yeah. That's what it was cut into. Um, but, but for digital music these days, when you go to remaster it for vinyl, you actually just change the EQ on it. It's like, okay, let's turn up the lows and the mids because people ex- are expecting this to be warm, you know, and what does warm mean? Well, I guess we turn up the mids and the, and the low range a bit. So <laughs> it sounds warmer. But again, the reality is, what speakers are you listening to? Do you have a subwoofer or not? You know, like, like to, to say stuff sound, like if, if you had an original 1960s wax vinyl and you listen to it on shitty speakers, it's not going to sound better <laughs> than, than if you have a, if you have a digital version on $10,000 speakers, which one's going to sound better? You know, so, so the, the, the output matters as well too. The needle matters. The, the system matters. The power amp, the amplifier matters the most. Is it a tube amplifier or is it a digital amplifier? And again, if something was recorded analog, it's going to sound better in a tube amp. If it was recorded on, in, in the digital world, it's going to sound better in a digital amp because you're going to get more of that dynamic range that was recorded. Those numbers get crunched and compressed when you throw it into an MP3. People don't realize that. And they're used to just listening to it in their little earbuds, you know. Uh, that's that's what music has. So that's why I like vinyl. Vinyl is making people take the shit out of the wrapper, yeah. hold it in their hand, sit it down and listen. Enjoy They're it. not like on the road. You don't have a vinyl player in your car. You don't have a vinyl player at the park. You're sitting there and you're paying attention again because music has kind of become just this wash over of, oh, yeah, we have it everywhere with us. It's always with me. You know, which is cool in some regards. I'm not against that, but it's just, it's different. So now that vinyl's back. So yes, I love vinyl for that reason. Yeah, people, yeah. a whole generation of people who never held music in their hands can now hold it in their hands. And that's pretty cool. That is, it's like the old days. And one of my colleagues at Arcade, it's that Keith is a huge vinyl music collector. He's got loads of video game music. He's got Earthworm Jim, the new vinyl that's released. Cool. He, he would agree. He, he loves it. He's, He's such an advocate of music and games. 
Um, Great. Couple, two, two or three really quick questions then um, before we wrap things up, Tommy. Uh, what bands or music do you do you most love listening to? Do you, you know, what what bands right now are on your uh, iPod? Let's say. Well, I'm a I'm a big classic rock guy, so I love Van Halen, as I mentioned, uh, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Boston, um, <laughs> uh, Journey, Sticks. You know, those to yeah. me, that's like amazing rock and roll songwriting uh, uh, those bands there so in the rock world i love them in symphonic music as i mentioned i love beethoven john williams mozart um <coughs> you know those those are kind of my orchestral heroes um but in like edm in the trance world uh artists like bt uh, enigma delirium really like where they take beats but they're really melodic as well um is, is the kind of stuff that i that i really really like uh modern stuff you know i'd, I'd probably say foo fighters are the most modern uh, i like pink yeah. like i think her songwriting is is really really good um but uh, and and of course I'd be uh, crazy if I didn't say Aerosmith because they had such a <laughs> yeah. big uh, impact on me growing up. Um, but yeah, you know the more modern stuff, um, you know for for pop music, like you said, I like Pink, I like Foo Fighters. Yeah. I think they're both uh, really really tasteful, uh, you know, uh, style. I think Foo Fighters is probably like the last recent rock and roll band, you know, <laughs> you know. But you know, like I watched the Grammys. And uh, last weekend, and aside from like Elton John, um, which I love, Elton John, Billy Joel, but aside from him, like I just I didn't feel connected to anything that was being played, oh, not a enough. single thing. I just it's just uh, and again, it's, I'm not saying it's bad or I'm putting it down. I'm just saying for me personally, you ask the question. I don't feel connected with a lot of new music that's that's coming out. I just I don't feel the melody. I don't feel like like. In the old days, I used to be able to, you know, tell you every single person in the band. Yeah. Right. It's like, yeah, Van Halen was on guitar and his brother Alex was Eddie was on guitar. Alex was on drums. David Lee Roth was a singer or Sammy Hagar and Michael Anthony was the bass player. Boom, you're done. I could do the same thing for Journey and Steve Perry and and Sticks and Dennis DeYoung and was the, yeah, and Tommy Shaw was a guitar player. And now it's just like, who's the bass player for Pink? I don't fucking know. <laughs> you know I, I have no idea. And who's the guitar player? I don't know. The fuckers never, ever played a guitar solo ever. I don't know. Like, there's no guitar solos anymore. What, yeah. what happened there? You know, so, so that's, uh, you know, so I don't feel connected. You know, I'm not a big uh, rap guy at yeah. all. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of music is kind of going that way now. And again, it's not that I'm putting it down or anything like that. I'm just, for me personally, I don't connect with that kind of music. So, um, I feel a little lost in the modern music era because I don't feel like I fit in anywhere. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> um, to the question, what projects are you currently working on? I know you've got video game live. Is there any other stuff in the background going on you can reveal or? Yeah, I mean, there's video games live. Um, you know, there's this Rocky thing um, that's, uh, that I'm going to be, uh, you know, launching that's going to be huge. Um, and there's the Kickstarter. You know, the video games live, the level six Kickstarter. It starts February 19th and goes all the way to the end of April. So it's two months long. Um, please, uh, you know, check that out. Yeah, and, yeah. 
Yeah. So th- those are the three big, huge things that are going to consume my entire year. Those three things, touring video games live, doing a new album for video games live, and then starting the, uh, the Rocky project. <laughs> sounds like a dream. Well, it sounds perfect to me. I've been, right. They're all brilliant projects. <laughs> you. For, uh, Tommy, so final question, just before we say goodbye, if you could share a few drinks uh, with a video game character, who would you choose and why? Is there a character you'd say, yeah, I'd love to have a good night out with that person? Yeah, well, I, I don't drink alcohol, so I, oh, so okay. I wouldn't be getting them, getting anyone drunk. Um, in my single ga- days, I would have, you know, jumped all over saying Laura Croft. Um, <laughs> yeah. And she'd be a pretty interesting person anyway, I think. You know, female. It, she's basically the female Indiana Jones. So, you know, um, I definitely, she'd be at the top of my, uh, top of my list just from, uh, you know, she comes from a rich family. I mean, the stuff that she's seen and been through and the stories she could tell, she'd be a pretty interesting person. And again, you know, easy on the eyes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I always had a crush on Laura Croft. Um, and, uh, she'd be a good one, but, um, Gosh, you know, I mean, the only other short Italian in the video game industry besides me is Mario. So maybe we'd have a lot of, you know, kind of family things. We'd exchange Italian grandma recipes and shit like that. So, yeah, yeah. so Mario might, <laughs> uh, might, might, might be a good one as well. But, uh, yeah, that, those, those would be, uh, those would be two, two big ones, I think. Uh, that's good answers. Definitely. Look, Tommy, I, I, it's been a brilliant chat. I have to say, I've really enjoyed it, and I really do appreciate you taking the time to talk to to me in Arcade Attack. It's it's generally a real pleasure, and I, we we wish you so much luck in the future. And I'm, I'm definitely going to check out your projects and sign up for the mailing list and so forth. But so, thank you, thank you so much. Awesome. No, thank you for uh, for helping spread the word. And yes, I will see you. Uh, I will see you at Video Games Live for sure. And uh, thanks for helping spread the word. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get in touch regarding this week's episode or anything else, you can tweet us at Arcade Attack UK, at Keith Barlow82, and at Arcade underscore Adriano. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash Arcade Attack UK. 
please check out our website at arcadeattack.co.uk for lots of retro gaming goodness, interviews, reviews, features, top tens, etc. And you can also find all our previous podcasts there. Our podcasts are available to stream from the website and are available to download for free from Stitcher, Podbean and iTunes, where you can also leave us a review and a rating, which we would really, really appreciate. So until next time, take care and we'll speak to you soon.